Section five of The Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter twelve. The Pointed Boots. Mr. Felix Marl sat behind the locked door of his bedroom, and he was engaged in a task which had the elements of unpleasant familiarity. Twenty-five years before, when he was an inmate of the big French prison at Toulouse, he had worked in a bootmaker's shop, and the handling of boots was an everyday experience. It is true his business had been to repair and not to destroy. Today, with a razor-sharp knife, he was cutting to shreds a pair of pointed, patent-leather shoes which he had only worn three times. Strip by strip he cut the leather, which he then placed on the fire. Some men live intensely and suffer intensely. Mr. Felix Marl was one of those who could crowd into a day the terrors of an eon. In some manner a newspaper had got hold of the story of the footprint in Beardmore's ground, and a new fear had been added to the many which confused and paralyzed this big man. He was sitting in his shirt-sleeves, the perspiration rolling down his face, for the fire was a big one, and the room was superheated. Presently the last shred was thrown into the fire, and he sat watching it grill and flame before he put away the knife, washed his hands, and opened the windows to let out the acrid odour of burning leather. It would have been better, he thought, if he had carried out his first resolution, and he cursed himself for the cowardice which had induced him to substitute his revolver for a fountain pen. But he was safe. Nobody had seen him leave the grounds. With such men as he, blind panic and unreasoning confidence succeed one another, almost as a natural reaction. By the time he had descended his stairs to his little library, he had almost forgotten that he was in any danger. In the fading light of day he had written a conciliatory, even a grovelling letter, and had, as he believed, delivered it safely. Would it be found? He had another moment of panic. Sir, said Mr. Marl and dismissed that dangerous possibility. His servant brought him a tea-tray, and arranged it on a small table by the side of his desk, where the big man sat. "'Will you see that gentleman now, sir?' "'Eh?' said Mr. Marl, turning round. "'Which gentleman?' "'I told you there was a man who wanted to see you.' Marl remembered that his boot-destroying operation had been interrupted by a knock. "'Who is he?' he asked. "'I put his card on the table, sir.' "'Didn't you tell him that I was engaged?' "'Yes, but he said he'd wait until you came down.' The man handed him the card, and Mr. Marl, reading it, jumped and turned a sickly yellow. "'Inspector Parr,' he said unsteadily. "'What does he want with me?' His shaking hand fingered his mouth. "'Show him in,' he said with an effort. He had not met Inspector Parr, either professionally or socially, and his first glance at the little man reassured him. There was nothing particularly menacing in the appearance of the red-faced detective. "'Sit down, Inspector. I'm sorry I was busy when you came,' said Mr. Marl. When he was agitated, his voice was almost bird-like in its thinness. Parr sat down on the edge of the nearest chair, balancing his derby hat on his knee. I thought I'd wait until you came down, Mr. Marl. 
I wanted to see you about this Beardmore murder. Mr. Marl said nothing. With an effort, he kept his trembling lips from quivering and assumed, as he believed, an air of polite interest. You knew Mr. Beardmore very well? Not very well, said Marl. I certainly have had business dealings with him. Have you met him before? Marl hesitated. He was the kind of man to whom a lie came most readily, and his natural habit of mind was to state the exact opposite of the truth. No, he admitted. I had seen him years ago, but that was before he had grown a beard. Where was Mr. Beardmore when you were coming into the house? asked Pa. He was standing on the terrace, replied Marl, with unnecessary loudness. And you saw him? Marl nodded. They tell me, Mr. Marl, Parr went on, looking down at his head, that for some reason or other you were startled. Mr. Jack Beardmore says that he thought you were momentarily terrified. What was the cause of that? Mr. Marl shrugged his shoulders and forced a smile. I think I explained it was a little heart attack. I'm subject to them, he said. Parr had turned his hat so that he was looking into the interior, and he did not raise his eyes when he asked, "'It was not the sight of Mr. Beardmore?' "'Of course not,' said the other, vigorously. "'Why should I be scared of Mr. Beardmore? I've had a lot of correspondence with him, and know him almost as well.' "'But you hadn't met him for years.' "'I hadn't seen him for years,' corrected Marl, irritably. "'And the cause of your agitation was just a heart attack, Mr. Marl?' asked the inspector. For the first time his eyes rose and fixed themselves upon the others. "'Absolutely,' Marl's voice did not lack heartiness. "'I'd forgotten all about my little seizure until you reminded me.' "'There's another point I wanted to clear it up,' said the detective. His attention had gone back to his fascinating hat." which he was turning over and over mechanically until it had the appearance of a revolving butter-churn. "'When you came to Mr. Beardmore's house, you were wearing pointed patent shoes.' Marl frowned. "'Was I? I've forgotten.' "'Did you take any walk into the grounds, except the walk you had from the railway station?' "'No.' "'You didn't walk around the house to admire the, um, architecture? No, I did not. I was only in the house a few minutes, and then I drove away. Mr. Parr raised his eyes to the ceiling. Would it be asking you too much, he demanded apologetically, if I requested you to show me the patent shoes you wore that day? Certainly, said Marl, rising with alacrity. He was out of the room a few minutes, and came back with a pair of long, pointed, patent boots. The detective took them in his hand, and looked earnestly at the sole. "'Yes,' he said. "'Of course, these are not the boots you were wearing, because—' He rubbed the soles gently with his hand. "'There is dust on them, and the ground has been wet for the last week.' Marl's heart nearly stopped beating. "'Those are the boots I wore.' he said defiantly. What you call dust is really dried mud. Parr looked at his dusty fingers and shook his head. 
"'I think there must be some mistake, Mr. Marl,' he said gently. "'This is chalk dust.' He put the boots down and rose. "'However, it isn't very important,' he said. He stood so long, looking down at the carpet, that Mr. Marl, in spite of his fear, became impatient. "'Is there anything more I can do for you, officer?' he asked. "'Yes,' said Pa. "'I want you to give me the name and address of your tailor. Perhaps you would write it down for me.' "'My tailor?' Mr. Marl glared at the visitor. "'What the dickens do you want of my tailor?' And then, with a laugh, "'Well, you're a curious man, Inspector, but I'll do it with pleasure.' He went to his secretaire, pulled out a sheet of paper, wrote down a name and address, and, blotting it, handed it to the detective. "'Thank you, sir.' Parr did not even look at the address, but put the paper into his pocket. "'I am sorry to bother you, but you will realize that everybody who was present at the house within twenty-four hours of Mr. Beardmore's death must necessarily be interrogated. The Crimson Circle—' "'The Crimson Circle!' gasped Mr. Marl, and the detective looked at him straightly. "'Didn't you know that the Crimson Circle were responsible for this murder?' To do him justice, Mr. Felix Marl knew nothing of the kind. He had seen a brief report that James Beardmore had been found shot, but the association of the murder with the Crimson Circle had not been disclosed except by the Monitor, a newspaper which Mr. Marl never read. He dropped into a chair, quaking. "'The Crimson Circle,' he muttered. "'Good God! I never thought—' He checked himself. "'What didn't you think?' asked Parr gently. "'The Crimson Circle,' murmured the big man again. "'I thought it was just—' He did not complete his sentence. For an hour after the detective's departure, Felix Marl sat huddled up in his chair, his head in his hands. "'The Crimson Circle!' It was the first time he had ever been brought into even the remotest touch with that blackmailing organization— and now its obtrusion upon the order of his thoughts was so violent that it disturbed every theory he had formed. "'I don't like it,' he muttered as he got up painfully and turned on the light in the darkened room. "'I think this is where I get away.' He spent the evening examining his bank-book, and the examination was very comforting. He could squeeze out a little more, he thought, and then— Chapter 13 Mr. Marl Squeezes a Little More Another agent of the Crimson Circle found her lines cast in pleasant places. She had been accepted by Mr. Brabazon without question, and evidently the man in the car possessed extraordinary influences. What was even more extraordinary was that day followed day without a word from her mysterious employer. She had expected that he would almost immediately avail himself of her services, but she had been at Brabazon's, late Sellers, bank, nearly a month before she received any communication. It came one morning. She found the letter on her desk, addressed in bold pen-print. There was no sign of the circle on the letter, which began without preamble. "'Make the acquaintance of Marl. Discover why he has a hold over Brabazon.' Send me the figures of his account, 
and notify me immediately his account is closed. Notify me also if Parr and Derek Yale come to the bank. War Johnson, 23 Mildred Street, City. She carried out her instructions faithfully, though it was not for a few days that she had an opportunity of seeing Mr. Marl. Only once did Derek Yale come into the bank. She had seen him before, when he was a guest at the Beardmore's, and even if she had not, she would have recognized him from the portrait of the famous detective which had appeared in the newspapers. What his business was, she did not learn, but, looking out of the corner of her eye from the little office she occupied alone, by virtue of her position as Brabazon's private secretary, she saw him talking with one of the tellers at the counter, and duly notified the Crimson Circle. Inspector Parr, however, did not come, nor did she see Jack Beardmore. She didn't want to think too much of Jack. He was not a pleasant subject. In moments of perturbation, John Brabazon, the austere and stately president of Sellers Bank, had a characteristic little trick. His white hands would stray to the hair, curly and thick at the back of his head. One curl he would twist about his forefinger for a moment, and then he would slowly bring the tips of his fingers across his bald dome until they rested on his forehead. In such moments, with his head bowed and his fingers resting on his brow, he had the appearance of being engaged in prayer. The gentleman who sat with him in his neat office had no characteristics at all. He was a big man who breathed noisily, and he was puffy with lazy, indulgent living, but he did not fidget, and his hands were folded over his large waistcoat. "'My dear Marl,' the banker's voice was soft and almost caressing, you try my patience at times. I will say nothing about the strain you put upon my resources. The big man chuckled. I give you security, Brab. Excellent security, old man. You can't deny that. Mr. Brabazon's white fingers played a tune on the edge of his desk. You bring me impossible schemes, and hitherto I've been foolish enough to finance them, he said. There must come an end to such folly. You have no need for help. Your balance at this bank alone is nearly a hundred thousand. Marl looked round at the door and bent forward. I'll tell you a story, he mumbled. A story about a penniless young clerk that married the widow of Seller, of Seller's bank. She was old enough to be his mother, and died suddenly, in Switzerland. She fell over a precipice. Don't I know it? Wasn't I taking photographs of the beautiful mountain scenery? Did I ever show you the picture of that accident, Brab? You are in it. Yes, you're in it, though you told the examining magistrate you were miles and miles away. Mr. Brabazon's eyes were on the desk. Not a muscle of his face moved. Besides, said Mr. Marl, in a more normal tone. You can afford it. You're making another matrimonial alliance. That's the expression, ain't it? The banker raised his eyes and frowned at his visitor. What do you mean? he demanded. Mr. Marl was evidently amused. He slapped his knee and choked with laughter. What about the person you met in Stane Square the other night? The one in the closed motor-car, eh? Don't deny it, I saw you. A nice little car it was. 
Now, for the first time, Brabazon displayed signs of emotion. His face was grey and drawn, and his eyes seemed to have receded further into their sockets. "'I will arrange your loan,' he said. Mr. Marl's expression of satisfaction was interrupted by a knock at the door. At Brabazon's, "'Come in!' The door opened, to admit one whose appearance put all other matters out of the visitor's head. The girl brought a paper which she placed before her employer, evidently a penciled telephone message. White, gold, red. Mr. Marl's senses registered the impression he received. White, creamy white and delicate skin, red as poppies the scarlet lips, yellow as ripe corn the hair. He saw her in profile, was revolted a little at the firmness of her chin. Mr. Marl liked women who were yielding and soft and malleable in his hands, but the beauty of mouth and nose and brow, they made him blink. He breathed a little more quickly, a little more loudly, and when she had gone, after a colloquy in a low tone, he sighed. "'What a queen,' he said. "'I've seen her somewhere before. What is her name?' Drummond, Thalia Drummond, said Mr. Brabazon, eyeing the gross man coldly. Thalia Drummond, repeated Felix slowly. Isn't she the girl who used to be with Fryant? Bit sweet on her yourself, eh, Brabazon? The man at the writing table looked at the other steadily. I do not make it a practice to be sweet on my employees, Mr. Marl, he said. Miss Drummond is a very efficient worker. That is all that I require of my staff. Mal rose heavily, chuckling. I'll see you tomorrow morning about that other business, he said. He laughed wheezily, but Mr. Brabazon did not smile. At half-past ten tomorrow, he said, going to the door with the visitor. Or can you make it eleven? Eleven, agreed the man. "'Good morning,' said the banker, but did not offer his hand. Hardly had the door closed on the visitor before Mr. Brabazon locked it and returned to his desk. He took from his pocketbook a plain white card and, dipping his pen in the red ink, drew a small circle. Beneath he wrote the words, "'Felix Marl saw our interview in Stain Square. He lives at 79 Marisburg Place.' He put the card into an envelope and addressed it. Mr. Johnson, 23 Mildred Street, City. End of section 5